Uh, okay. So that was the thing. Um. So what? We're up to two good episodes and two bad ones so far. Yeah, that about tracks. Oh my God! I, where do I begin? Okay, okay. Um, Richard Matheson wrote the episode, and never wrote another episode of Star Trek. Leo Penn directed the episode, and never directed another episode again. This is just becoming a trend. By the way, in this specific case, Penn was not brought back because his shoot went one day over. When it's about a duplicate, which has tons of extra footage you have to take. And so, whatever. Anyway, so they axed him. And so this is the Two Kirks episode. Don't worry, it's not that one, or that one, or that one. It's the first one. Oh, God, where do I begin? Okay, so Scotty starts off the episode, and he's like, Hey, we need to double-check the transporter. And he's like, You got it. And then seconds later, he beams Kirk up. Didn't you just want to double-check the... Okay, whatever. Then, as they're leaving, Kirk says, Don't leave the transport room unattended. Scotty says, Absolutely. And they both leave the transport room unattended, which allows for evil Kirk to come up. You know, you can tell he's evil, by the way, because he has eyeliner... And he's sweating. Yes, good, pure evil. <laughs> Later on, they try to change the outfit that Kirk is wearing, good Kirk, in order to help distinguish it. But then evil Kirk takes it, and it's just, just it's all a bunch of nonsense. So we get a Captain's Og from the future. That's fun. I'd like to give the episode one bit of credence. Something that irritates me in all of fiction, although it's shown up in Star Trek quite a bit, is the thing where someone undergoes a major personality shift because of alien possession, or because they're an imposter, or because they're from the future, or whatever, right? It's something. And nobody notices, or if they do notice, it's really slow, or they just kind of take it with a grain of salt. Irritates the crap out of me. It's a huge pet peeve of mine in fiction. Like, if... Some these people are familiar with each other, right? If I went into work tomorrow, okay, that's a bad example because I am at work tomorrow. But you get my point. If if I walked into someone which I had a long-standing professional relationship with, and they started acting differently, I'd probably notice immediately. Now I'm kind of giving this episode a pass because Spock and McCoy notice immediately, and there's almost no hesitation. Like, okay, something's up, and there's an imposter, obviously. The reason I'm not giving this episode full credit is because several other people, including Fisher and, most importantly, Rand, can't tell it's him. So, you know, that's that's nice. Uh, can I just say how immensely uncomfortable the confrontation scene is? Like, okay. Rand... Kirk attempts to force himself, evil Kirk, attempts to force himself on Rand. Okay, that's messed up. As we uh, have already talked about, Miss Whitney has already gone through some unpleasant things in her life, so, although that's probably after this, which doesn't make it better. It's just still very uncomfortable. So she, by the way, some of you are probably wondering what I, let, let's go and talk about that. Let's just get that out of the way. She was sexually assaulted by an executive while working on Star Trek. The, the the original series, okay? Let's just get that get that right up there, nice and ugly and dark and horrible, exactly as it should be. That is an extremely unacceptable thing that happened to her. She 
never actually named who did it. If you decide to go through the chain and actually look at what she says and how she mentions the specifics of the encounter and what was happening historically at that point in history, I'd say we have close to a 99% chance of knowing exactly who did it, which doesn't make it any better. Regardless, though, we don't know for certain, but that is something that went that happened to her, and then, well, she had problems. By many accounts, including her own, she did find help. She got better, she straightened out her life, and she herself has mentioned that the adoration of the fan base helped that. So, that's nice, I guess. At least we were there for her. I mean, she died years ago at this point. But by all accounts, she died peacefully and at, you know, of old age. And I don't know. I, I don't know what else to add here. It's just, it just really sucks. And when I finally finish inventing that time machine in about six years now, I'm going to go back and I'm going to try and fix a whole lot of things. Anyways. <clears throat> what? But now, having said that discomfort and horribleness, let's let's talk about the discomfort and horribleness in the episode. So she thinks Kirk just attempted to force himself on her, and Fisher backs up the claim and was assaulted by him, okay? Now, I want to stress this point. Neither of them think it was someone else. They both accept that it was Kirk. Now, that's important. It's one thing to say, well, it was someone that looked a lot like you, or, God, it seemed to be the captain, but it couldn't have been. Instead, what they say is, Oh well, I don't. I don't want to get you in trouble. I don't want. I, you know, I don't want to cause any issues for you. Oh my God! This is further made worse by the fact that Fisher insists it was you. It was you. You know. You know. The point here is neither of them have any problem problem believing that James T. Kirk, the real person, not the evil half, would do the kind of things that he did that both of them witnessed, which is. Um, I don't even know what to say about that. If I was to speculate, I would say it's, well, really, really bad, either for Starfleet, or for the human race, or for Kirk, or any combination thereof. I'm not. I'm not willing to give the episode that much credit, because this is not a good episode. Instead, it's just... Oh my gosh, someone I know is acting completely differently, and I don't notice there's anything different at all. I just buy into it completely, because I'm a moron. It, it's it's copy-paste. It's the same crap that pisses me off throughout the rest of fiction. And for once, I'm actually happy about that. Because the alternative is disgusting. So she, they confront her about it, and it's like, Oh my god, you know, no, it can't possibly... Blah, 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 blah. And this leads to the B-plot. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you're paying attention. This is Star Trek history in motion. As I've been kind of talking about as we go through these episodes, um, this is a historic moment. This is the first B-plot in Star Trek. I'm not sure why it's here. It wasn't actually in the original script, and God, it shows. It almost feels like filler, except for the fact that the Sulu sections are the best parts of the episode. I'm dead serious, by the way. Ignoring the fact that it's monumentally stupid, at one point he mentions that it's negative 40 degrees. Now you're probably thinking, which? 
Actually, it doesn't matter between Fahrenheit or Celsius because negative 40 lines up neatly there. But the point is, have you ever been in negative 40? I have once in my life. It is a uniquely horrifying sensation that I would never possibly do justice in explaining. Uh, it, imagine being near a heat source, in a heated area, in clothing, in a well-designed, isolated sleeping bag, and having your bones feel cold. As in, inside your body, you feel cold. And that burning sensation. It's not fun, is what I'm trying to get at here. Later on, it gets to down to like a hundred and something before they finally, you know, get them up. Right. Anyways, <clears throat> so the B plot, which is there to to make it so that there's a ticking clock rather than just being this just being a character drama because we have to have we got, and that's funny too because that's the purpose of so many B plots in so much of Star Trek history to have there be a threat of the week in order to establish that. So yeah, I think this might actually qualify as a very first threat of the week. It's debatable, but I I think it qualifies. At the very least, it's the beginning stages of what would eventually become the threat of the week. That's funny, because this episode is also two other firsts. Uh, first of all, it's it's Dead Jim. When, when they try to beam the, the, the cute little puppy, and all oh, that poor puppy. He didn't have a chance. It's okay, he died of shock. <sighs> Alright, actually, I kind of like this section. There's, there's tidbits that salvage this from Lamentation status, and this is one of them. The idea that the bestial mind literally lacks the ability to cognate in ways that we do, and as such, cannot cope with certain things the same way we do. We, as human beings, are, after all, astonishingly adaptive. And that adaptability can very much hurt us and abuse us, but at the same time, we still adapt. That's what we do. So, the idea of... It's, it's to borrow from Dune... If you put an animal in a in a certain circumstance, and if the animal is struggles and the struggling will kill it, the animal will struggle because it doesn't understand that. The human mind can comprehend if I struggle, I will die, and then can try to apply willpower and discipline to fight its more bestial instincts in order to not struggle and therefore live. Right? Interesting thought process there. Part of the episode's point, which is actually made literally in the middle of the episode, they, they bring it up right at the halfway point, is that, uh, you know, you're half of me, I'm half of you, we need each other. That we need both halves of ourselves in order to be ourselves. That we must have that. And the problem was, the more I thought about this, the less this actually made sense. First of all, just about everything refers to Evil Kirk as Evil Kirk and Good Kirk as Good Kirk, which implies that we need evil and good equally, which I, I just call bull on. But on top of that, we also add the fact that Evil Kirk comes across as more bestial, primal, if you will, whereas Good Kirk comes across as more higher reasoning. And yet, it is intellect that is supposed to be the answer to the entire solution. And one of higher Kirk, you know, the reasoning Kirk's perspectives is that he can't make decisions or focus on things. He just kind of starts to space out, which is not something I usually associate with higher reasoning. Whereas the really decisive one is the primal one, whereas animals themselves tend to be actually rather indecisive, although, of course, that matters from varies from animal to animal. And I get the point. The point is they wanted to show that one side is simply half and the other side is the other half. It's just the episode then frames one of them as evil and one of them as good. 
This is a good time to mention that though Richard Matheson uh, wrote this episode, Roddenberry came in and substantially did some rewrites on top of it. Now I would buy that because Roddenberry is not the greatest writer in the world, as I've pointed out several times, and a lot of the, the themes of the episode seem to contradict itself, almost as if two writers were going for two completely different ideas. Also, one other thing I'll get into later. Uh, let's see here. Oh, yeah. Speaking of Star Trek firsts, Vulcan neck pinch. Started it all the way back here. Spock was originally supposed to be like, Cha! you know, the the move. The tra- Shatner does it all the time. Cha! Right on the shoulder, like right here. And they just go, Ugh, and they fall out because every human in the future has like a weak point. It's right here. It's like, it's like a video game boss, you know, stunned. And then they just sit there for three seconds while you wail on them and then they get up and they go to phase two. That's when Mecha Shatner shows up. The Nimoy said, "There's, there's no way this isn't gonna work," and, and, and Spock is too intellectual of a character to just karate chop someone. And the director says, "Well, that's within the script." This is Joe Penn. The director says, "That's within the script, so do your job." Nimoy then went launched into this massive explanation of his character and his character's backstory that, of course, was something that Nimoy himself could come up with. This is one of those interesting things. A lot of actors who are actually into their roles will do exactly this. They will invent headcanon in order to explain backstory, in order to establish who and what they are. Now, what's interesting is that this is necessary in so many of cases, that it wasn't something that the director or the creator or the mainliner or whoever actually told them, like, hey, here's your backstory. Anybody who's worked on the theater knows that's my approach to directing, is I will tell you the why and the wherefore and what's leading up to a situation so you know how you should be acting in a moment. That's my general approach. I guess nobody cared about this when making some random sci-fi show in the 60s that everyone was barely making, but you get the idea. Nevertheless, once again, as with uh, Whitney last week, you can tell an actor at least gives a damn about their role when they bother to do this kind of thing. Funnily enough, the same thing would be done by... Oh, no, I can't think of his name. The guy who plays Reed in Enterprise. Uh, I will be talking about this a few weeks from now when that comes up over on Enterprise. And again, I've already covered that. Don't tell me the name. Don't tell me... I don't care. I don't care. He's a a good actor and I like him. I just... I don't care right now. So... They do some good split-screen work in this episode, by the way. Surprisingly good stuff. You can always tell when it's a stunt double or when there's another person there. Still, it is actually impressive for the time. And as always, I'm not here to judge the tech of the time within the confines of the time. Although the structure of the narrative, that's something I'm going to rip to shreds. Speaking of which, they decide to send the the dog through. It's dead Jim, and he comes out as Tuvix. Now, this is... uh, the episode just kind of starts to wind down rather quickly uh, as, as we have one last attempt by Evil Kirk, who's terrified, terrified of the thought of dying, of ceasing to exist, which once again reminds me of Tupix. Like, okay, I made that line earlier as a joke, and then like 20 minutes passed. This is a really sloggy episode, so forgive me for not having a lot to say about it. And then Evil Kirk is like, no, I want to live. And obviously, you know, uh, Shatner has chunks of... Uh, styrofoam and cardboard in his teeth, but the point is, you can see the parallel idea there. The creature not wanting to be returned to its original state, since the orig- this creature has now effectively formed a new intelligence. We could sit and discuss the possibilities of this and the dilemma of this, but two points completely smash that out the window. Number one, both will die 
on their own. And number two, we've got that ticking clock. Sulu down there at the negative 100 degree temperature where he's actually technically died 20 minutes ago. Huh. So this then leads to an, probably the best possible example for why the B-plot was tacked on and was not or intended as part of the script. Shatner reforms, and the first thing he says is, beam them up! Um, so they haven't fixed the transporters. Like, that's not a thing. The only reason, remember, the only reason, and it was a theory, up until Kirk getting reformed, and even then it still technically qualifies as a theory, but the idea is that the shock of being recombined is something that the mind can fight. So they're just beaming those people up, and then they're going to immediately recombine them after giving them a psychiatric pep talk of don't worry, just hold on to yourself so they don't die in the remerging. No, all of that is thrown out the window because the dilemma's over, so let's get them up and now the B-plot's done. It's just, it's over. It's good. We're done. We're done here. Then the episode ends. And then Nimoy says something. Remember how I mentioned how this episode had that rewrite? Now, I have no proof of this, but I'm pretty sure that Roddenberry wrote Nimoy's final lines to uh, to Rand. Because not only does he say, you know, it seems evil Kirk had some interesting qualities, didn't he? Implication, implication. And if you look at what Rand's reaction to that, she is visibly uncomfortable with that. And then Nimoy visibly leers at her with just a bit of a grin on his face while he does so. What? By the way, in her memoirs, in her book, uh, Grace Whitney actually spoke positively about this episode. Except for that scene. Like, she, she thought the episode was some good stuff and explored the dynamic between her and Kirk, and blah, blah, blah. And then Spock said that, and that is just horrific. Uh, I forget her exact quote, forgive me, but it's, some, it's something like the worst possible thing you could tell a sexual assault victim. And I'm kind of with her on that. What the crap? I'm this close to, to just say, just fixing the background here right now and just giving a last-minute lamentation label because what the hell? There, there are some redeeming elements, and it does lift it up a little bit better. I know I'm inconsistent with it. Shut up. <laughs> That's just only so much I can do, guys. But honestly, if of course you haven't heard that yet, as I will talk about on Enterprise... I consider three degrees of bad when it comes to thinking of whether or not something's a lamentation. There's lamentation, one step up, and two steps up. Two steps up is pretty easy. There's, there's a lot of ways to explain that. One step up is something that has a lot of the features of a lamentation, but it just doesn't quite feel like one. You know what I mean? It, it has too much buoying it that prevents it from being just absolute dreck. Because... Well, because I've seen absolute drag in my life, you know what I mean? I have seen some drivel and some garbage. And we haven't gotten to the Hippies episode yet. You want to see a lamentation? Not that I know that one's going to be one. Who knows, maybe I'll even like the episode this time around. I haven't watched it in years. Ugh. This episode was exhausting to go through. I hope you enjoyed. I'll see you next time.